Welcome to the Just Dumb Enough Podcast. What is the difference between who you are and what you do? If criticism blurs the line between feedback and insult, or if you lay awake at night thinking of all your mistakes like me, you're handling it wrong. I'm your host, Colton Petrie, and my guest today, Bill Lee Emery, has been a therapist, author, and public speaker for over 30 years. His newest book, or as I prefer, Resilience Guide, How to Be Bulletproof from Criticism, addresses the overly harsh things we do to ourselves with the criticism or feedback that we receive from the world around us, and what we can do to move past that feeling. Apologies if there's any spots in this episode where it skips a little bit. We were chatting through a program over Wi-Fi across the entire planet, and technology isn't perfect, but I've tried to fix it the best I can. Now then, let's get critical. Critical. We also mentioned in the interview how I shouldn't be singing. Welcome to the show, Bill Lee Emery. Thank you, Colton. Love to be here. Yeah, I'm so glad to have you. Thank you for making time in your schedule as we are chatting across the world right now. And it's very early in the morning where you are and latest at night where I am. <laughs> yeah, but we're making it work. Why don't you introduce yourself to the audience who uh, doesn't know about you? Okay, so I live on the Gold Coast, Queensland, Australia. And I just published my fifth book, which is called How to Be Bulletproof from Criticism and Do Whatever the Heck You Want, It Is Your Life. And I was going to change that title and make it a little bit more edgy, but I thought, no, there's going to be some younger people reading it, so I'll just keep it nice straight down the line. Actually, a bit of background. I've been working in men's gatherings here in Australia for the last uh, nine, nine, ten years, running workshops, facilitating, etc. And one lunch break, I was just listening to conversations around the table. And a lot of the men were talking about how they had difficulty in dealing with criticism, either from their partners or at work, or even through their own self-dialogue, you know, just hacking away at their self-confidence. And I had some experience of this in a professional uh, setting many years ago. And I thought, oh, that'd be a good That'd be fun to do, bring out all the stuff that I know about dealing with criticism. So I ran a workshop the next year on how to be bulletproof from criticism, and it went down really well. And then one day I was sitting meditating as, um, as I do, thinking of what's next, and I thought a book, another book. And then I'm thinking, you know, if you look at Amazon, something like 5,000 titles are put up every single day. And I'm going, well, what else is there to write about you know that I know and then it struck me like a bolt of the obvious that here I have I've done a course I know the content all I've got to do is take that content and turn it into a book and I wanted to make sure that the book was easy to read it was targeted just for one topic because if you allow me to I can talk for days underwater (laughs) (laughs) Um, so I wanted to make it short and pithy and to the point and very readable and that's the feedback that I'm getting so that's how the book eventuated and partly it's my own experience of dealing with criticism but also work with 
countless people over the last 40 years, I guess, I've been in this field and picking up a lot of wisdom from some mentors of mine. And really, if if I was to give any credit to the book, it's really the wisdom that I've gained from other people. Yes, they're my stories and they're my slant from it, but really this is wisdom that had come from other people. I just happen to be the um, handy messenger, if you like, of the topic. Yeah, well, and having published numerous books before, you were you know, brave enough to weather the storm one more time. <laughs> yes, indeed. Well, you know, you know when you've got a calling to do something, it's almost like you can't not do it because there's something inside just goes, yeah, come on, do it, come on, do it. Yeah, forget all that rubbish you're talking about. Just have to do the thing. So um, it's funny, the, the writing part for me is quite easy. I just got to basically unload my brain. But the editing is the part that, oh, man, it, you know, I had to do a lot of my own editing, so I didn't want to give it to a professional and there's glitches in grammar and spelling, and so I had to make it relatively tight. But that's where writing is easy, the editing, eh, not so much, but got to do it, got to do it. Yeah, that's what I have heard from having a lot of people on this show so far. A lot of them have written like one book, and when we talk about it, they're like, yeah, I don't know that I want to do a second book. <laughs> <laughs> well, my first book that was published 30 years ago was called Stop Procrastinating, which is really quite interesting. It's another story about how that happened. But anyway, so I wrote the book in about six months and I went to the editor and it came back. And in those days, it was I typed it all out and it was double spaced, et cetera, and sent off the big water of paper to the to the editor and it came back with red ink all the way through it well i didn't pick that up for another three months i was just daunted by the red ink through every single page so i procrastinated on editing my book on procrastination which i thought was kind of cute or ironic yeah (laughs) no that's funny what got you into all this like what made you want to stand up and be the voice that helps people solve their own crises um pain I think and I think uh, from a lot of people that I spoke to in the field from their pain becomes a sense of purpose and and this is pretty common that there's almost like a I've got to tell other people about this because I can see other people suffering so it's a sense of I guess coming from compassion but also contribution and as human beings and I know this and the work I've done as a coach, you know, therapist, counsellor, etc. If people are not able to contribute, they suffer. On the inside, their spirit gets crushed, if you like, implodes. I have some good friends of mine who are cartoonists, but their perfectionists are so harsh that they don't put it out into the world. And because they hold it in, they experience suffering, suffering of the soul, whatever you want to call it. So pretty much all the books and all the things I've been involved for the last 40 years have been looking at my own areas of pain and going, well, and if I got myself out of it, if I didn't, then I wouldn't write a book on it. Um, the lived experience has got to be useful, I suppose. Um, and then just taking those insights because you know, these insights, sure, they emerge from my own struggle, if you like. But also, as I said before, I mentioned this, from the wisdom of other people. So. That's really how all of this started, almost by accident. Um, The first book, 
I was um, running workshops in Melbourne in uh, Victoria, Australia, with a business uh, colleague of mine. And somehow we got on the, the largest paper in Melbourne called The Age. And we got an article like on the third page, like which is just crazy insane to get. And there was a cartoon of a young boy who had been, who obviously asked this question, what is procrastination, Dad? And the father says, um, oh, yeah, I'll tell you later. And so that, there was a little cartoon. Anyway, the editor of uh, Random Centre, the managing director, he saw this cartoon, found us and said, would you write a book? And I'm going, yeah, sure, you know, bold as brass and, you know, full of piss and vinegar. I'll write a book. What do you want to write a book on? And he said, well, how about procrastination? And I had heaps of personal experience with procrastination. And I've been able to deal with some of it. So I thought, yeah, that's a good idea. And that's how the first book came. And then the other ones came from some pain or some opportunity or just a prompting, if you like, from within myself of go do this. So here I am. <laughs> well, and I'm glad you're here and I'm glad you're writing all these things because it seems, you know, when you think about personal experiences, at least when I think about them, they come in all shapes and sizes. You know, some of these are like just a small comment here and there that just like slowly eats away. And the more you dwell on it, you know, the more it just digs in deeper. And then some of them are these blow up arguments you have with someone and the, the echoes of that disaster just kind of stay around. Yeah. yeah. I have a couple of stories from uh, primary school, elementary school, I guess you'd call it. And one involved a, a singing teacher who was my favorite teacher. Like she was still blue eyes, gray hair, tied in a bun, um, strict, but really kind. And, and, you know, we all loved her. And it was... Um, singing time and I've never sung in my life something like eight years of age or something like this and all the little kids are lined up and we're singing our little hearts out god knows what we're singing and she's listening to every child as they sing and then because uh, we all wanted to be in the in the choir in the school choir because that was like cool fun etc and she whispered something in my ear and what she whispered in my ear and I won't tell you what she whispered so you'd have to get the book to find out what happened. But she whispered something in my ear, which lasted for at least 40 years, at least 40 years. And the point really of that story is when we're young, we're almost like a blank canvas. And whatever is written, written on the canvas can stay and can be deeply embedded in our sense of self, our sense of identity, our belief system. It can etch a cavern in our thinking, if you like, so strong that it can last for decades. And, and I guess as, as an adult, you know, as a child, we it just happens. We have little protection against that. But as an adult, we've got a chance to explore those things and work out, well, it wasn't really true. Was it meant in that way or not? And that it's our responsibility with how we deal with it and how we resolve it. So we're able, with some consciousness, to be able to transform it. And incidentally, another teacher in the same school who taught us English and maths, I had the same kind of experience where I wrote an essay and he mentioned it in front of the whole class, my essay. And what he said lasted 
all of my life. And both were innocently said, but they had both had deep ramifications in my life. And this is probably true of most people. You know, someone says you're good at this, and so then all of a sudden you like it more. Someone says you're crap at that, and so we don't like it. And so little innocent things. So for all the parents listening to this or would-be parents, please be very careful <laughs> with the language that you say to your children and, and learn what to say and what not to say because what you say can last not only for their generation, but they can, if they're not smart enough, pass it on to their children. And you can see generational pain coming from some unthinking comment that can last intergenerationally, which is such a shame. So we need some awareness, we need some consciousness, we need some mindfulness about what we're doing. Otherwise, the pain can last for hundreds of years. And I say that without any equivocation, it could last hundreds of years. Yeah, and it's hard. You know, the longer you go without addressing something, I feel like the more it distorts in your mind into being, you know, even if it was something very mild, like when I was singing back in grade school in a choir, they told me it's fine that your voice isn't very good because it's going to be covered up by the other voices. <laughs> and I was like, got it, sing quieter. <laughs> <laughs> so I just like, I took that in. But I, I addressed that pretty quick in my brain. I'm like, okay, look, I'm not a good singer. That's fine. I'll just, I'll move on to something else that I am good at. Yeah, yeah. But like, if I didn't address that and I just thought about it every day or, you know, once a month even for the next, you know, 20, 30, 40 years, like by the time it gets into the 40th year, I'm no longer hearing like, look, you're not very good at this, but it's not going to matter because as a group, you'll sound fine. It turns into you're so bad at singing. You make me want to stop music. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. You want me to hurt my ears. So you stop singing. And that's the thing. We can all make a mountain out of a molehill. You know, it's, it's interesting you know, when I'm working with clients and someone might say something, let's say in a relationship, two people in a relationship, one person says something and the other person takes offense at that and then they build it up and then they build it up and then they come from this space and then they attack and that person takes the same whatever comment and builds it up. Before you know it, you've got World War Three going on and for some people this is happening in their head, not in real life. They're having this imaginary conversation, but I say he or she said, and it, and it goes on, and we can really stress our immune system and our nervous system because of the hallucinations that we're making, which is built on a frail piece of reality. So for a lot of people, they are, and I also deal with this too, internal criticism, they are the worst enemies. You know, I kind of laugh at this. People... Uh, you know, they work really hard and they go away on holiday to get away from it all. The thing is, they take their internal criticism with them so they never actually relax because this critic is going on holiday with them, you know, beating the shit out of them, calling them this, calling them that, reducing their self-esteem and super critical and, and so unkind, inhumane and unnecessary. Yeah, it's like you can get away from work by taking a week off. But if you think <laughs> about all the things that are going on at work that you hate while you're on that week off, like, yeah, you could have just there gone to work. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Been paid more and whatever. Yeah, exactly. So, how do you start addressing these problems? Like, how do you tell people when we 
you know, you need to look at your history. How do you how do you try and find the issues? Mm. Yeah, it's a really good question because it can be there's many places of of approaching this. And my favorite way is when I'm working with the client is to help them identify one part of their life where whatever they're doing is having some kind of negative consequence. So they have to have some kind of point of pain. Otherwise, what's, you know, what's the point? Might as well go and have a cup of coffee and talk about something else. So they come to me with some kind of pain that they're experiencing. And then part of the unraveling is to find out, well, what's their part in it? Like what's the bit that they are responsible for? So let me just backtrack a little bit. So let's talk about criticism. Criticism by itself is not bad. It can have some very useful ramifications, like in the professional world, corporate world, business world, the people are so precious. You know, when people take things to heart, they are so fragile. You say one little small thing and they totally crumble in front of you in a fetal position and won't get up for a couple of weeks. Well, that can't really happen in a a business because, well, you just can't do that, you know, crawl up on the floor in the middle of a room. So when people take things to heart, if you actually listen to the language of what's happening. So I'm holding a pen in front of me. So let's say this is some criticism about me. Now, there's two things to know. Are they criticizing me, Bill, the human being, or are they criticizing what I have done? In other words, my behavior. So let's say I take this pen and I say to the world, hey world, I've made this pen with my own design, my own hands, what do you think of it? If someone says, wow, Bill, that's a really shithouse pen, does that make me a shithouse person? Well, no, it doesn't, because they're actually talking about the pen, they're not talking about me. In the same way, if I say, Bill, that's a beautiful pen, Does that make me a beautiful person? Well, no, because they are still talking about the pen. So we need to distinguish the difference between who we are and what we do. I am responsible for what I do by making this pen, but I am not the pen. So when my daughter was young and she'd bring a painting to me and she'd say, Daddy, what do you think of this? And so I know what she's The underlying question is, how am I going with this stuff called art? And I know at her age, she's three or four or five, she hasn't distinguished between who she is as a human being and what she does. They are the same. So if I were to criticise her pen, she would internally take that as dad criticising her. Make sense? So I have to help her at that young age to separate us. So I'll ask her a couple of questions. And if you'll list those, have pen and paper, these two questions are worth writing down. So first of all, I ask about what she liked about what she's done. My second question is, and if you were to do it again, what would you change or do differently? And she'd say, I'd have more, I don't know, red here or more black there or I'd have a border around it. So I'm helping her to evaluate if you were to do it again what she could do differently. So notice in those two questions, there is no criticism, there's no put-downs. I'm helping her to build on her strengths first, to use her own um, intellectual ability to work out what she could do differently. And I've done this pretty much all her life. 
I then would ask her, and even when she was a little girl, I'd ask her, so would you like my opinion? And when she was young, often she would say yes, as she got to be a teen teenager, often she would say no. And I'm helping her to, to distinguish between a fact and an opinion. It's like if someone says, you know, this pen is lousy or beautiful, that's not a fact, it's an opinion. The fact is it happens to be a blue pen with some white, white writing on it. So, you know, listeners obviously can't see this, but that's what it is. So if I'm unable to distinguish between a fact and an opinion, then I'm open for manipulation. And when I hear politicians, and we are about to have elections here in Australia, and country, but when I hear politicians, any facts at all, they're going to be giving me their opinions about what they want. So we need to distinguish between a fact and opinion. We also need to distinguish between the person and their behaviour. So in the business world, we need to be able to critique people's behaviours and say, around here, this is the way we do things. Train people on how to do that, coach them if you need to. So this is how we do things. And when people do something other than that, then we need to say, hey, tell me what you think you like about what you're doing and what you could do differently. And they go, oh, yeah, oh, yeah, I forgot to do this, I forgot to do that. So therefore, they are, you can help them grow as a person without putting, without putting them down, without belittling them and making them feel bad, which doesn't do anything. So one of your countrymen, Edward Deming, who started Total Quality Management, he was a professor in the United States, and this uh, is at the end of World War II. And Japan, of course, had been raised to the ground, and he was sent there to basically revitalize their industry. And that's where his whole idea of total quality management came about. And one of the th things that he would say, when things were going wrong, be soft on the people and hard on the system. And what he means by that is most people in most circumstances will do the best that they can. But if someone is doing something and they're doing it wrong, it's because the training system that supports them has got some holes in it and it hasn't picked up that behaviour. So if something's going wrong in an organisation, then fix the system and the people will naturally follow. But if you just blame or punish the individual, and not don't change the system, the next person comes along and do exactly the same thing. And I don't know how it is in America at the moment or around the world, wherever, you, wherever you're listening from, but we have more Japanese cars here now than any other car. And that is partly due to Edward Deming, a professor from the United States, putting in place total quality management in Japan at the end of World War II. And he was very strong on understanding the basis of something going wrong. And if you look, if anywhere in the, in the world, if you look at something that, that's broken, it's because the system itself is broken and it's not because of the people. So bringing it home to us as individuals listening to this, if you have an internal critic that's kicking you from morning till night, telling you all these nasty things, that is just a system. A system that's been in place for however long you picked it up for and it happened to you and you've taken it to be the gospel and this is how life is. It's just a system. It's up to us then to look at the systems that are unconsciously running our behaviour and go, hey, is this still working or not? And to change the system. If we change the system, we will change how we show up. So 
you know, from years of being around this kind of material, if I do something and I messed up, very rarely, every now and again I might do just to see what it's like, <laughs> I very rarely get into my inner critic and beat myself up. I've got better ways of dealing with my my failings. I have much better ways of dealing with it. They're much more humane and much more useful because they help me to spiral up rather than spiral down. So there's lots of different things that you can kind of pull apart. And all I'm looking for is one little opening, one little point of pain, because when someone is in pain, that's when they're more likely to be open and to listen to something else. And what I'll say to people is, you know, I sense that you're experiencing blah, 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 whatever it might be. And if you'd like some help or some ideas, let me know when you're ready and we can have another conversation. So I don't go in and rescue people, even if I'm coaching them. I don't rescue people, but I'll say here, there are some resources that you can learn that can make your life better, easier, much more effective, and much more fun. And is there like a time, I think specifically for me, I, I know where it is, but is there a time for most people where that system is kind of running the loudest or it's running the most processes in your mind? Because for me, it's at night. Like if, uh. I'm, if I'm laying in bed, that is like my brain yelling at me for all the things <laughs> I did or didn't do. Well, actually, I've got to say, Colton, if it's yelling at you, you're better off than if it's whispering very quietly. Because when it's whispering very quietly, it kind of, the message is getting through, but you're not paying attention to it. You're much better off having someone yell at you than whisper behind your back. But let me address this when it's really yelling at you. Let me add a model to this. And this comes from a, an Italian psychiatrist called uh, Roberto Esoglioli. And he talked about a model called psychosynthesis. And in essence, what he was saying was this, is behind every behavior, positive or negative, there is some positive intention for the individual. So let me explain what I mean with this. I'll give you an example. Let's say a child is acting like a bully at school or at home. Now, we'd call the bullying negative behavior. Now, you might ask, so why is a child being a bully? And there could be a multitude of reasons. It might be because that's how he sees other people getting what they want. It might be that he figures out that if he's a bully, no one's going to pick on him and find all his insecurities. Or it might be that he wants attention, but he has no idea how to get positive and positive attention. He just knows how to do it the negative way because or he only got attention when he was doing something negative. So in, in this model of psychosynthesis, it's going, okay, look at what we would call negative behavior and what's underlying it. So for a child being a bully, it might be they want attention or they, they don't know better ways of getting what they want. Um, give me another example. Why do parents nag their teenage kids to do their homework? So what do you think? I mean, because they want them to do well in school? Yeah. I my guess. Yeah, yeah. So why do they want them to do well at school? Uh, probably because it seems like the, the closest path to, you know, an easier success down the road. 
Yeah, yeah, sure. It would be easily accessed down the road. So why should the parents care? Because it's their kid. So what? (laughs) (laughs) It's because they love them. Okay. But a 14-year-old boy, when his dad is haranguing him to his homework, isn't saying to himself, good on your dad, you really love me, you notice when I'm not taking responsibility for doing the stuff that I know I need to do and you're just reminding me, I know you're doing that because you love me and you want me to do well in the world. Hey, thanks, Dad. That's not the conversation going on inside the 14-year-old's head. It's like, get off my case, get off my back. I hate you, leave me alone, blah, 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 whatever. So they don't understand the intention behind the nagging. So underneath yours, because we're talking about you, it's your example, underneath your criticism, there's an opportunity for you to sit down with your inner critic, have a cup of tea or a cup of coffee, whatever it might be, and say, hey, listen, we've been around for a while. You know, I noticed that sometimes you really yell at me. And I guess if you're yelling at me, it's because you figure I'm not listening to what you want to say. Tell you what, I'm going to be quiet now, and I'm going to let you tell me exactly what it is that you want from me that's for my good, because I know you wouldn't be doing this if you didn't give a shit. The fact that you're doing this is because you care. But the way you're doing it is making it really hard for me to listen to the the golden messages that you've got for me. And I know I need to hear them. So can you please lower the tone and the aggression in your voice? Speak more like an adult, because I am an adult. And as clearly as you can, point out the things that you figure that I could be doing differently and what would be the beneficial effects in my life if I were to do them. So I really want to hear your messages, but right now I've got to tell you, the screaming and shouting, nah, I just turn off. So what you're going for is a win-win because the internal critic, if it didn't care, would just shut up. It would just let us go off into the distance and fall off a cliff without thinking the reason is yelling screaming or whispering because it does care but we are blind and dumb and deaf to the message that it wanted gives us so you know that saying keep your friends close and your enemies closer right yeah so why on earth would we keep our enemies closer than our friends well because if they're on the other side of the planet we can't see what they're doing we can't see what they're planning and scheming but they're right in front of us We've got all this information that would not be visible or or audible to us if they're on the other side of the planet. So if there's any part of any behavior that you you or any of the listeners have experienced and they're trying to push it away, pretend it doesn't exist, bring it closer. Sit down with a cup of tea or a cup of coffee, whatever you want to drink, and say, hey, I've been ignoring you. I've been trying to get rid of you. You're the bane of my life, and I could call you all kind of names or whatever. But I know if you're here, you've got a message for me. Let's start again. Let's start our relationship from scratch. Let's get to know what we really, how we can support each other so it's win-win. Because that internal critic, it wants us to win. Otherwise, it just would shut up and let us have disaster after disaster and not give a fig. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, it's one of those that's like, if you see someone you actively dislike, and you see them messing up, you're more likely to just 
stay quiet, stay out of it and watch, you know, watch it blow up in their face. Indeed. Um, but if it's something that you care about, you're more likely to say something. Yeah. And it's very unlikely that you would start yelling, you know, prompts <laughs> at them to get them to, to sabotage themselves. No, that you probably would be more um, intelligent in your approach and humane in your approach, especially if it's something that you do care about. Say, hey, I noticed that this is going on. I don't know if you have noticed this, but this is happening. And this may be what's going to happen if you keep on doing this. I just want to let you know that because I'm your friend. I care about you, et cetera. And it's the same kind of relationship that we can build with ourselves. Because in the end, it all comes down to our relation with ourselves. Because of all the people that we'll ever meet or experience or be with, the one that's going to be the longest is going to be us. So if we don't learn to be our best friend, to be our best support person, to be our best listener, then we're in a lonely place because we then have to rely on other people to do that for us. And if they don't do it properly or well enough or whatever it might be, here we are. Now, some people live with an inner critic that just there's no release from. Like it's just incessant. And it's because, going back to the system, the system that they've got has become so embedded that they haven't taken the time to ask themselves, is this working? Is the system I have within myself working? Do I need to do something different? And sometimes pain is the pathway that goes, hey, it's a slap across the face. It's a Mack truck. It says, you keep on doing that, you're going to just really hurt yourself. So stop it. And that's what sometimes the inner critic is there to do, say, hey, do something different. Yeah, and it made me think, you know, if you talk to your inner critic, and I don't know why this is the image in my head, but it was like a hot chocolate and a notebook, and just like, <laughs> all right, let's let's write down our problems, and then we'll just, you know, we'll dig through the bullet points. The immediate opposite thing that I could think of is fairly prevalent in our world in this day and age is anonymous comments on the internet oh yeah 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 and i've been fortunate enough to avoid most of that like i've gotten some you know here and there that i'm just like this is somebody you know like acting out or doing whatever it is because it doesn't even make sense to me and i just you know brush it under the rug but some people especially the more active you are on the internet really get a lot of that and that seems like that whisper that we were talking about like that is the the whisper in the background that you don't necessarily want to pay attention to and you just notice yeah. offhand yeah so let me actually address that because that's actually a really important uh point that you make and it's becoming more important because someone on the other side of the planet can say something that can be really hurtful to me and it's designed to hurt it's not designed to help a person grow it is designed to hurt and the pleasure that they get is from someone responding in a way that's defensive or whatever it might be. So I, I want to talk about something called, uh, in linguistics, it's called a, a frame of reference. And a frame of reference is, is all about validity. So um, it, when I'm running workshops or working with, with clients, I, I'll ask them, so let's say you do a day's work. How do you know? that you have done a good day's work. And the answers will fall into one of two categories. They'll either say, well, 
oh, I just know it. I get the sense, you know, that I've done a good job. I just know it. It's an internal thing. Or the other one they'll say is, um, oh, well, my boss tells me. I'll get some feedback. You know, I get some more likes on my posts, whatever it might be. So one is internal and the other one is external. Yep. And both external frame of reference and internal frames frames of reference are important in different contexts. For example, if I, um, so in COVID, a lot of people learned to make sourdough bread. And I was one of those people, I'm going to learn how to make sourdough bread. Had zip idea of how to make it. So I went online. So I have zero frames of reference, internal frames of reference about quality of bread making. None. No benchmarks, no KPIs, zip. So I have to go to an external frame of reference, learn what they do, find those benchmarks, those milestones, those things to do, KPIs, whatever, and then internalise them. Yep. But if I go, if I say to myself, well, I don't know how to make sourdough, but I pretend I'm a legend in my own lunchtime, in other words, delusional, and I go, well, I'll just make it with no benchmarks, no idea. I'll make just the shittiest loaves of bread that you can think of. So when I'm learning, I have to go external first, learn what the criteria are, and then internalize them. Yep. Now, and there's another context where an internal frame of reference, in my view, is crucial to long-term health and well-being. And it, so I work with people across a, a wide variety of things, but one of the common things that comes up is self-confidence, self-esteem. Both those phrases had the word self in it. So when someone has a lot of self-confidence and have high self-esteem, another way of understanding that, if you think of frames of reference, they have a strong internal frame of reference about their own validity, their own value as a human being. But when we're kids, we, we haven't really worked out who we are, so we haven't found out our own true worth. We don't have those benchmarks of, of our intrinsic human value. But as we grow up, especially through teenage years, when we struggle and maybe find out, oh, I'm this or I'm that, and we start to accept some things about ourselves, part of the, the rites of passage, if you like, through teenage years is to start to develop a good, strong internal frame of reference about our own validity. So, for example, if someone were to call me a goose or any other phrase that you like, family show, I'm guessing, so I'll, I'll call it goose, but it could be any other language that you want. A couple of things that go through my head. First of all, is it a fact or is it an opinion? In other words, if I've just started to, to waddle when I walk and I'm making honking noises and I've just sprouted feathers, well, then maybe I've actually turned into a goose, but no one's actually been kind enough to tell me, in which case I either need to see a vet or a doctor. So I need to work that as a fact or as an opinion. I also need to work out, are they talking about me as a human being or my behaviour? And to separate the two, because if it's my behaviour and I'm acting like a goose or a jerk or whatever it might be, then maybe I need to look at that behaviour and go, is this really how I want to show up? But the other thing is, and this is really crucial, it's whose opinion about me am I going to honour the most? 
is it going to be mine or is it going to be some anonymous person on the other side of the planet who I have no idea about? Am I going to give them the power of deciding my validity as a human being, as a creative source, whatever it might be? Because if I give up that power to other people, that every slight comment or dislike, and I will take that comment to heart. And what I'm doing is I'm becoming a puppet on the string to their opinions, and I'm making them in charge of my self-esteem, my self-worth. And if that's part of someone's system, then for heaven's sake, shake up the system and change it. Because that's something we can take responsibility for. You know, someone can say something, but what I do with it is entirely my responsibility. And there are some people you can see on social media, someone says something and they crumble because they're taking somebody else's opinion for good, important, more important than their opinion about themselves, and they've taken it to heart. That's what hurts. And in a real sense, what they're not doing is being a sovereign human being. They're giving up their responsibility for the happiness and well-being to somebody else that they may never, ever meet. And unfortunately, things like trolling is becoming worse and worse and worse. Teenagers in particular are much more vulnerable to this because they haven't maybe learned how to do this and how to take charge of their own sense of happiness, their own sense of worth. It's still everybody else, what they say, means more to me than what I say about myself. And as a parent, I made sure that my daughter was taking the more useful path than the path that I saw many of her friends take, which was like everybody else's opinion about me is more important than hers. It's tough though. It's tough. It is. And there's so much that says, you know, out there in the world that's not real, but it does say, hey, you're only worth as much as people say you are. Yeah. It's like in a (laughs) in a monetary value, that might be true. Like you know, maybe the the product you're producing might only be worth as much as people say it is. And that's an economics question. Yeah. But you can't take that and apply it, especially when you're younger to yourself. Yeah. And this is why it's hard, like for youngsters, teenagers, and people in their twenties and even thirties. I mean, I really only started to get a handle on this in my early thirties, really, when I started to learn some of these things. I was running programs many years ago for uh, younger people. Uh, we had a program with Max Wife called Tina Steam, which is for kids between 8 and 18. We would teach them some of these things. And, and I know because decades later, those uh, have actually added to their lives. And so, so I know, and I know it's going to another generation that have kids, etc. I know that these are being passed on. So... The things that we say to younger people and the things that they learn to say to themselves are really, really important. I think that is, you know, the best way you can put that. You know, you have to look at everything coming in and everything you're putting out, because as much as you can, you know, you're like, I'm the best at getting feedback. I know when it's an opinion. I know when it's fact and I'm perfect at that. But if you're turning around and not giving you know, like you said, a well thought out, well phrased criticism, like you might be part of somebody else's problem. <laughs> yes, indeed. And they're, you know, they're very intelligent ways of giving feedback. And when I work with organization and companies, you know, I'll help them to set it up so that people are 
coached in how to be resilient because people need to be resilient, but also how to give feedback in a way that helps a person. So here's the thing. It's the intention. And I've seen this in the corporate world. Some people will have all the words and they've got the script and they know the template, what to say, but it just doesn't land. And other people may have the template and the words, they kind of get it mixed up, but it does land. And the difference is a very simple one, and that's the intention of the person. When the intention of the person is to really help the person grow, they might have all the right words and the right phrases, but the intention will carry through. But someone might be trained, they know what to say, but it lacks that authentic compassion, uh, and that is felt, and the person, it, it just won't land in the same way. So, you know, it's, it's really important in, in the commercial world, in my view anyway, that managers and supervisors, one of the things that they have got some agency with is to help their team grow and to be the best that they can be so they, from an economic point of view, they can actually produce more high-quality stuff for the company. But on a humane point of view, it gives them so much more. You know, all the companies that I've worked for, none of them have ever said in their manifesto that you have to give your heart and soul to the company. They can't say that. You can't legislate. You can't put that, you can't put that in a job description. But you can create a culture where people want to put their heart and soul in it. And I've worked with some organisations that that is their intention from the highest level. Um, I remember one organisation, a hotel that I was working for in Canberra, and the general manager, people would follow him from one property to the next. They just wanted to hang around the culture that he created because it was very humane, it was very fair. And he was such a inspiring leader because of the culture that he created and he took the time because he knew if you create a really excellent culture you will get excellent results and that will reveal itself in financials and people coming back etc etc like it just makes so much commercial sense if any business leaders listen to this please get your culture right and not just you know say it has to be a lived thing it has to be inclusive. It has to be encouraging. It has to be humane. You do that and just watch things thrive. If you don't do that, nah, it'll fail. Yeah, and you can see that, you know, and someone like you're talking about who is actively trying to be that difference to form that culture uh, versus one of the other guests I had on is a consultant for different different businesses. And he said one of the most common things he sees is a picture on the wall that says, this is our values. <laughs> he goes, and the first thing I will do is just stop everyone that is at the base level of the company and say, do you think these values are being upheld? And he goes, 90% of the time, I'm just hearing no. Yeah. It's like, no, it's on the wall because it looks good, not yeah. because you're actually acting on it. Yeah. And often, and when I've worked with organizations with this, initially, the people on the ground, frontline, have got no connection or ownership of that because they weren't included it was given to them like the 10 commandments this is what you shall do but there was no inclusion no ownership so why on earth should they act from that and it's just like yeah that's you tell us that stuff but you don't live it so why should i bother right well i think this has been very enlightening i think there's a lot of like 
good nuggets of truth in here that I think people are going to need to listen and write down. But I really enjoyed the way that you wrote your book and you pitch it as a resilience guide. <laughs> yes. um, I think that's amazing. So I, I want to give this, you know, this time to you to say like, hey, this is my book. This is where you can find me. All the things that, you know, people would need to, uh, to look you up. Okay, so the book is called How to Be Bulletproof from Criticism, and you can find it on Amazon. And if you want to connect with me with uh, the things that I do, you can go to bulletprooffromcriticism.com.au because I'm in Australia, and that's probably the easiest way to connect with me. And I do a whole variety of different things. One of the new projects I'm working with is to help people in purpose-driven companies in other words not financial driven but purpose driven to make more impact so if you happen to work in the if you are heart-centered and you work in a purpose driven industry you'll know exactly who i'm talking to and you want to make a bigger impact then uh come talk to me because i've got some really lovely goodies coming your way and while i have you here i had just done the big like six month review of the show said like, hey, we're getting played in all these countries. And when it shows me the map breakdown, I'm like, oh, I look at the United States, I'm missing a couple states. And I look at Canada and I'm missing a couple territories. I just wanted to shame them since, <laughs> since we're talking about Australia. I am only missing one territory and it's just labeled Northern Territory. Yeah, yeah, Northern Territory. <laughs> yeah, okay, oh, good, all right. I'll see who I know I'm there. Yeah, I figure because anytime I do a show, like I've had several Canadian guests, my numbers from Canada always jump. And it's like, it's funny to see that. And I looked at my map of Australia and I'm like, there's only one of these not colored in. I get to shame the Northern Territory for not listening to the show because they're not listening. So they don't know that I'm talking about them. Well, I'll do my best to spread the word and um, I'll see if I can stalk down some people in the Northern Territory and say, hey, listen to this. It's for you. <laughs> I appreciate that. Thank you again for coming on the show. I appreciate your time. It's my pleasure, Carlton. Thanks for listening to another episode of the Just Dumb Enough podcast. Share this show with other people and give it a review if you can. Pretty, pretty please, just for me. Remember, you can always email the show if you have questions, guest suggestions, a topic you want to hear, or just anything else on your mind, dumbenoughpodcast at gmail.com. I've got some things going on outside of work and outside of the show that are consuming my time and attention. I'm not getting into it, I just want people to know in case it slows me down at all here. But we have a update in the rankings. Number one, still the United States, and Oklahoma is just barely holding on as the top state against Oregon. Number two is the United Kingdom. But number three is Mexico, working its way up fast from number five last week. Number four is Canada. Number five is France. That's all I've got for you this week. Until the next one. Bye-bye.